Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Josip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. My name is Tobias, and I'm back again with Yussi. What's up? Hey, Toby. All good here, still and again, but I'm ecstatic. And this is my Finnish uh, mentality telling, telling everybody that I'm ecstatic. So after months and months of waiting, something, something happened this past weekend. Uh, let me explain what happened, then you can probably also join in my delight on this small change. So I use Firefox as my main browser on, on my workstation and the laptops. And I, I think, Toby, you inf influenced me on, on moving to Firefox about a year ago. But at least for me, and this is on all of my devices, there's a bug that when you open a new instance of Firefox, so you go to Windows Start, you click on Firefox, it spins up the new instance. It randomly positions itself on the main screen. That's fine. But then out of habit, I always press the Windows key and left arrow because I want the Firefox main window to be on the left hand side of my main screen and I have multiple displays. Nothing happens. If you press Windows key right arrow, it moves right, but it never comes back left until you click within that window with a mouse, move it just a little bit and then it suddenly starts, starts working like this. So it's a small thing. But something updated this past weekend. It could be my Windows 11 build. It could be Firefox 91, which I think was released also. But now, when Firefox's new instance pops up, I can do Windows left key, it goes to the left. So my life is now complete. Success. So uh, I, I never had that issue with, with my Firefox or, or my laptop, but I, I can relate to the issue of not being able to do something you expect. Uh, it's a productivity blocker. When you're doing something, you have a, a train of thought and you need to quickly reorganize, in this case, your window to get something done. And then you kind of drop the thought you had because you need to fix your window, not fix the, the thing you were working on in your thoughts. So exactly. relatable. And, and with Windows 11, though, you have the new hotkey, WinKey Z. Are you using that? I, I haven't tried. Should I try it right now in the call? Will something well, happen? <laughs> you can try. <laughs> Let's see what happens with the recording, though. Uh, so WinKey Z gives you this small menu in the active window, uh, sort of like with fancy zones in the in the Windows. Uh, what's it called? The tools, the toolkit on, on GitHub that you can install. So with WinKey Z, it gives you a small menu that allows you to quickly position the window in a specific location on on the screen, like lower left. Yeah, like the, the like the fancy zones yeah, of the exactly. particles. Yeah. So that's built into Windows 11 now. So I've I've started using that a bit more now, but still, when I quickly need to rearrange things, I use Winky left and right quite excessively. And now with Firefox, it works. It worked for everything else, but not for Firefox. So. In, in in four long minutes, I'm ecstatic. Everything works now. That's my latest update and top of mind. How about for you? So I, I guess I can also share 
some of the excitement here, perhaps not about not being able to boot my browser windows, um, but I'm also running Windows 11, uh, which is pretty nice. I did not use the uh, the built-in WinKey Z that you just mentioned, but I just tried it. Uh, I moved away from the recording window into an actual uh, normal window on my machine. And yeah, I can see the menu, kind of like the fancy zone. What I do like about PowerTonish fancy zone is I use the mouse to uh, drop my windows and you can configure it. So if you drag a window and then right click at the same time as you drag, so both mouse, uh, mouse buttons are clicked, then you can see the fancy zone so you can drop it into the right zone. So if I'm not using the Win keys, I can do that. And that's actually pretty nice. So I do use that with Windows 11, although you have this uh, smaller version of fancy zones uh, built in. So I really like, uh, really like that. Um, so good tip for anyone checking that out. For me, I spent some time in the woods, to your surprise. So if, if you've been an avid listener to this show for some time, you know that every now and then I go, I go into the woods and I spent one or two or three days doing some overnighters and some longer hikes. This time we went to a, uh, a lake, had some great wine by the fire. We came there pretty late because I went directly after work. It was pretty nice. Uh, slept in the woods, had a good time by the bonfire. And uh, the next day we were supposed to hike, but perhaps the wine was so good. So we decided just to go down by the lake, have a cup of coffee, and then we went back home. So we didn't actually go for a hike. But the point of that story is usually my focus is the hike. And then you kind of, you're so exhausted, you just fall asleep inside of a tent. But it was actually really relaxing, just getting out in nature, you know, spending the time there, even if you don't exhaust yourself with, you know, a, a workout or a hike, just getting out there and refreshing your mind is really important. Yeah, I really like that. So for me, that was a great time. And a good friend of mine and me, we, we went out together. So time off from work, time off from family and duties and everything else. Just good time, good coffee, good wine, and a cold night in a tent. Sounds really awesome. And I'm, I'm thinking that perhaps you had your dandelion wine with you. If, if I did, that would not have been a, a very nice, uh, nice experience, I'm sure. Um, I did mention in one of the episodes, perhaps one of the first ones we recorded, that I, I brewed my own wine, which was from Dandelion. Um, I said this before, and I repeat, do not do that. <laughs> if you like wine and you like your life, don't do Dandelion <laughs> wine. It's not good. Uh, unless, of course, you, you can work your magic with it. That's solid advice. So today, this is episode 95 on Azure updates. And as it has been uh, a frequent custom of ours, uh, we visit the latest Azure updates from the past three or four weeks or so. And, and before we actually dive into the updates, I'm sort of thinking here that years and years ago, we would perhaps have two major announcements events per year, where Microsoft would pack each update an announcement in, in, in a five day conference. And then you would sort of sort of read through those in the next weeks and, and sort of digest everything. But now we have these updates every week. So it's both exciting, but it's also a little bit challenging in following up on what's relevant and what's not. So so we aim to pick up the updates that we feel are the most relevant 
and, and often the most interesting ones or things that might change certain activities or tasks you might be doing in Azure. So, Toby, let's start with your list first. What's what's sort of top of mind from your recent updates? So there's a couple of things uh, that caught my eye that I can both relate to, um, but I also know that that some of the people we've talked to that that listen to the show uh, work, works with as well. One thing that we spend some time both on Twitter and in person talking with people about is like virtual dev environments over the years. And GitHub code spaces just became general available. So you can now start using that. This was for the longest time in a private preview. Uh, I got an invite and I clicked the link and I was never allowed into the, uh, to the system until last week, which is the week before the, the GA. So I haven't actually had time to check it out other than you know signing in, trying one or two environments, making sure things work. So I'm very happy about this becoming GA. And for those now tuning in and wondering what is GitHub's code spaces, you know, what, what is that about? That is now available to all GitHub teams and GitHub enterprise cloud customers. And code spaces provide you like a full dev environment and you can have up to 32 cores. You can uh, access this from your web browser, from Visual Studio Code or using uh, a terminal like uh, SSH. So the configurations you can do, it's a virtual dev environment. So it's really a VM running in the cloud and you can define the CPU and RAM. You, ha- you can go up to 32 cores and 64 gigs of RAM. Takes less than 10 seconds to boot up in theory. Uh, and it uses the full power of Visual Studio Code if that's your thing, uh, including the editor, terminal, debugger, GitHub code pilots. If you uh, try that, it's pretty cool. Version control, setting sync. So if you have one setting on your desktop machine and you go to the browser and you want to pick things up, you get the same extensions, the same setting and everything the same and down to your theme and, and colors and all the customizations that you do on your dev ecosystem will um, just be replicated and synced across. So that works in the browser and hands off uh, on your desktop. And it's pretty cool. And the price for that uh, for two cores and four gigs is 18 cents per hour, or if you would run it full-time, it would be $130 a month, but you never run it full-time because when you're not using it, you shut it down. And you can also auto shut down. So that means whenever you're not using it, you're actually saving on the bill. So on the two core four gig setup, $130 is the maximum per month. If you would run that full-time, which you will not do. So you will probably get away with under half that, which is pretty cool. Um, so I have some use cases that I'm looking into using this where I can replicate the setup and the environment and everything across. Uh, so I can jump into a browser, make some quick updates, uh, but have the full experience of Visual Studio Code in the browser. So I, I really like this. Uh, I like the idea. And for the longest of times, we've had various things and various dev environments we tried to sync uh, with VMs and VHD images and all these things we did in the past, and we copied them uh, to team members and tried to get a replica of the uh, dev environment set up. This way, uh, at least for some of the projects, this will not work for all the projects I have. I know that already. But for some of the projects I have, this will be probably a very good alternative. So I have everything in the cloud, and I don't need to use one specific machine 
to get something done. I can do it from anywhere. It's an interesting service for sure. And I I lost track how many months or years the, the GitHub code spaces was in preview. It was in private preview, then in a, in a sort of limited preview, now generally available. Uh, when you started talking about this, I spun up my old code spaces instance just to see if it's still up and running. It took about a minute, probably because it's spinning up a VM somewhere. And it certainly is interesting. And, and this sort of takes me back not too many years ago, when you would visit a customer, they would have people doing SharePoint development. And when a new team member joins the company, they would hand him or her a USB hard drive, please use this to copy 200 gigs of VHDs to spin up your own dev environment. That way we can actually trust you know what you're doing. So in that sense, I, I feel this is a welcomed addition. But I also often see devs simply using Hyper-V or the Windows subsystem for Linux now locally and do whatever they need in, 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 in practice or have the full power of a VM. But perhaps we dive deeper into GitHub code spaces in a future episode. But just one quick question on this. Do you know if it's limited to just using Visual Studio code? Or is there a way for running the real Visual Studio as well? I have for now only used Visual Studio code because the projects that I'm looking at are smaller projects, some functions and stuff where I use Visual Studio code. So I haven't explored Visual Studio options at all. I know there was talks about it, but um, I haven't tried it out. So I cannot answer that. I would urge anyone who's listening in to, to take a look and go, go look at the requirements and what tools you can use. Definitely now that it's generally available, I need to use it a bit more as well to perhaps see the benefits of, of using this as opposed to something we already had. Alrighty, first on my list, and this is generally available, is global disaster recovery using Azure Site Recovery. So this is an interesting one. Uh, Azure Site Recovery, the service has been around for the longest of times. And it has allowed you to do disaster recovery from on-premises to Azure, or from Azure to Azure, but that was in the same same uh, region. Then we got zone to zone disaster recovery. And now with the latest update, there's a failover and disaster recovery to any Azure region. And, and how you use this is that perhaps you have your setup, your dev or production environment set up in, in West Europe. But just in case things fail in West Europe and North Europe, and all the nearby regions as well, Perhaps you want disaster recovery to the US or to Asia or just to Australia. So now there's no limits in sense of how and where you can do disaster recovery. So it's generally available now. And I would see this as an extension to Azure Site Recovery with, with one more option now to choose from when you configure disaster recovery. All right, that's cool. I'm going to have to take a look at that. Uh, I do have some DR scenarios going on and yeah, selecting the, the regions where you want to fail over has been sometimes challenging, you know, from a data sovereignty point of view and, and, and how and where do you want your data to go? So this makes sense. So I'm, I'm definitely going to take a look at that. Another update that I found 
is GA and public preview for web application firewall. There's a couple of updates for the WAF or web application firewall. So GA, something that is there now, is WAF bot protection on application gateway. So if you use application gateway, now you can also enable the web application firewall with bot protection. So that's kind of the built-in bot protection in the firewall for automated uh, crawlers trying to break into your site. So if you use App Gateway, the WAF now has that. That's pretty good. And another GA thing that also exists now, also on Application Gateway, is GeoMatch custom rules. So you can geographically match uh, the requests. And these things, I think we talked about that in a a previous uh, Azure Update episode where we talked about this being in, in a preview. This is now rolled out. And finally, the third update on the web application firewall here is a public preview, which is OWASP Mod Security Core Ruleset 3.2 for Azure Web Application Firewall. So that is now in preview. And if you know OWASP, this is kind of the standard for um, doing a lot of penetration testing, and there's a lot of common threats. There's like the OWASP top 10 uh, list of things like SQL injection, cross-site scripting, and yeah, all these kind of rules that you need to abide by to write secure web applications. And that's what the OWASP list kind of does. And now with the OWASP Mod Security Core rule set 3.2 for Azure Web Application Firewall, which is in preview, you will get some of these things also built in, which is also nice. So with Web Application Firewall, if you make use of that, there's some, some of these updates that might be interesting to take a look at. Really welcome to updates. I've I've got a couple of WAFs running in production, so I need to take a look at these these new features as well. Next one from me, and this is a fairly small one, but I wanted to highlight this. Azure Defender for SQL is now generally available in Azure SQL Virtual Machine Blade. It's it's awfully specific. So previously, if you wanted to enable Azure Defender for SQL you had to go to Azure Security Center and sort of on purpose drill down on the SQL settings and say, yes, I want to enable Azure Defender for SQL and then select the specific VMs. But what you can now do is you can go to a VM that has the SQL infrastructure as a service agent extension registered for the VM, implying that you're running SQL Server on the VM. And now on the blade, you can now enable the Defender Suite for the VM. So this will um, bring you some extra cost, obviously, for this new service once you enable it. And what it does is that it will configure automated backups, it will manage your license, and it will also check for your security configuration for the VM. Things like, have you integrated with a key vault for your VM that runs SQL Server? So a small change in the sense that it's more integrated now within the VM. Yeah, this is nice. This is good to know as well. And I I like these small nuggets and updates because some of these things we've done differently in the past. And it's, you know, it's obvious that these things become more and more transparent. So Microsoft is really thinking about the the user and the administrators and developers here, how, how we maintain and operate our system. So these things are very welcome. The next thing I was looking at is something that's now in development. So it's not even a preview, but I think this is exciting. 
Azure Automation. So there's uh, some updates around that. So Microsoft announced a, a couple of coming updates to Azure Automation, and I say in development, which means it's not even in preview. That means we cannot try it out at the moment. So this is more a promise of something that's coming. So Azure Automation is popular for process automation, either graphical, using PowerShell, Python, or run, uh, you know, Python runbooks, stuff like this. So the first update, which is in development, is AC module support in Azure Automation is coming. So Azure RM uh, PowerShell module will be retired by 2024. So my urge is for anyone listening, if you can, move to the AZ PowerShell. If you haven't already, that's the new generation of, of PowerShell modules. And Azure Automation, if you use that, will also start supporting this soon, as soon as this goes from in development to preview and then from preview to GA. Uh, and I think that's a notable change. A lot of the scripts you might have might run on Azure RM. Of course, you have until 2024 to keep them, and then this will retire. So there will be a fixed date when this will just stop working. And I know some organizations and teams have a lot of scripts. And I mean a lot, not thousands of lines, but hundreds of thousands of lines uh, of different scripts. So it might be worth taking a look at and thinking about how you can upgrade and, and move those into the AZ modules. Other update, the second update for Azure Automation that is also in development is PowerShell 7 support, which is also coming. I know I talked to someone a while back and they asked specifically where in Azure PowerShell 7 was supported. And obviously this was very difficult for me to answer because I don't think there's a page listing this anywhere for obvious reasons, I, I think. But for Azure Automation, if you make use of you know, modern features of PowerShell 7, or if you want to make use of modern features of PowerShell 7, Azure Automation will support this uh, in the future as well. And finally, the third update that is also in development for Azure Automation is that Azure AD support for Azure Automation is coming. Uh, this means you can enhance security as you remove the dependency on certificates and enable you to meet the uh, like stringent audit and compliance requirements. And by not using local authentication methods. And this makes me really happy. So you can kind of centralize the management of identities and credentials through Azure AD. And we talked in the past a lot about managed identities. Uh, I think in the last episode, we talked about application insights and also one update on application insight is you can disable local authentications. You don't, uh, you cannot send telemetry using only the telemetry key. You also have to authenticate unauthorized. And this is a similar approach where, um, you know, by removing certificates and all the local authentication methods, you now have to uh, make everything run through Azure AD and the identities you have in there, which is pretty cool. So if you're using Azure Automation, those three updates are in development and is something I am looking forward to, and I hope you do too. This is an interesting update. And we don't perhaps often see an update from Microsoft for an Azure service that says in development. It's either in preview or coming next week or generally available. And for the past couple of years, I've had the, I don't know, the expectation or the feeling that Azure automation is sort of not being sunset, but not the preferred choice and instead you should be running Azure functions or web jobs or something else. And now seeing all of these updates, 
it it makes me happy but it also makes me feel as if somebody came back from maternity or paternity leave at Microsoft and realized oh yeah I needed to do this so let me get cracking on on these developments and this week they actually started implementing those someone is catching up on their email in the in the wrong order <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh right this thing <laughs> Yeah, let me get on. Let's it. push it out. <laughs> yeah, next week you'll, you'll you'll get the new updates. So let's keep an eye on that because I I feel with these three updates that you now listed, I I feel that Azure Automation is sort of brought to the uh, the more modern selection of of tools you can use in Azure. Um, next one on on, on my side, uh, this is generally available. Start virtual machine on connect capability for Azure Virtual Desktop. So in the previous episode, we talked about Windows 365, which is based on Azure Virtual Desktop, it's it sort of shares the same infrastructure and some of the same controls. And now Azure Virtual Desktop gets an auto start for a VM. And I, I feel this is great, because now a user can connect with with, with their personal VM uh, in, in this VDI scenario, and you can actually have them shut down based on idle. Instead of paying for 24-7 when nobody might be using it, now you can ask the user that when you connect, give it a minute and it will spin up. So this feels like a more modern approach. And I hope this might be an option for Windows 365, but I think it might be already there because you're not paying per hour, you're paying a monthly fee. So if nobody's using the VM, perhaps in two days, I suspect that there might be happening something like this. Regardless, it's it's great to have this feature. And, and hopefully in the future with Hyper-V, we could also get this. Yeah, this sounds good. I haven't used the Azure Virtual Desktop a lot. Uh, I'm not using them for production workloads, but I did came uh, come across a couple of scenarios where I think it might have made sense. And I like this update. So you can kind of automate the uh, uh, starting a VM and shutting it down uh, based on the work you do there. So definitely worth checking out. I have one more update um, this time around, and that's about Azure Migrate. So there are two public preview updates right now. One is discovery and assessment for ASP.NET web apps with Azure Migrate. So you can dis discover and assess the on-prem applications you have for HP.NET web apps running on IIS servers. You can do this now at scale with Azure Migrate. Previously, you had this kind of agentless discovery and assessment of your VMs and your bare metal servers, but you needed to use some kind of integration with things like App Service Migration Assistant. Now you can discover .NET web apps running in your VMware environments, for example, and you can create assessments or migration recommendations at scale for Azure IaaS or Azure App Service. So Azure Migrate does come with um, you know, some fun updates here. Uh, I have, for the longest of time, I have been in the cloud. We don't have anything on-prem. We don't actually have a data center, not even a server under the, the desk anywhere. We are cloud only at this point, which is really fun. A lot of clients I've worked with, they have data centers and they have a lot of things on-prem still. And we realize not everyone is cloud only. You know, heck, not everyone is in the cloud at all. 
So I, I also have customers that I used to work with who are still fully on-prem for various reasons. Uh, but looking now at moving to the cloud, if you're in that position and you want to move your web apps, this might be a good tool to check out. So that's Azure Migrate. The second public preview update with Azure Migrate is uh, containerizing apps and migrate to AKS and Azure App Service with Azure Migrate. So you can modernize your ASP.NET and Java web applications if you have them uh, with minimal changes in theory to the application. Uh, the tool packages the existing applications running on servers into container images. So whatever you have, if it finds your IAS, it finds your thing, uh, your web app running, it will be able to, uh, and again, in theory, I have not tried this out, but this is the promise from the public preview. It will be able to package that existing application that is running on your server into a container image. And it also helps you deploy the containerized application either to AKS or uh, deploy as containers on Azure App Service. And the tool also uh, parameterize app configurations. It externalizes your file system dependencies uh, using persistent volumes. And you can configure application monitoring on the containerized application with App Insight and all these things. So Azure Migrate really took a step up here in my eyes uh, where with all these things, you can a little bit easier at scale, at least assess what and how you can move your web apps to the cloud in this case, either to AKS uh, or you know, containers on Azure App Services. So to me, this means you don't have to move, you don't have to use it to migrate, but you can use this tool to make an assessment. You know, How much work will it mean for our team? How much effort will it be required to actually take this thing and move it to the cloud if we want to do that? So even if you choose not to actually move to the cloud uh, for whatever reason, which might be super valid, you can get an assessment from the tool you know, with, with a ballpark saying, you know, here's a couple of things you might need to consider. But other than that, we can just take this thing and we can move it over like that. Um, so the, the promise of Azure Migrate with these new capabilities is pretty cool. So I'm, uh, yeah, like I said, we don't have on-prem environments and I am not going to be able to try this out, but I would be very keen on trying it out, um, you know, with an IIS web app to see how it packages it and how it containerizes it and how it puts the parameters on. Um, but I think because it's creating Docker images out of it, you can kind of customize that along the way, I would suppose. This is something I need to test because exactly one year ago, I was working on an Azure Migrate project with a customer and I set up my own home lab to migrate VMs from my own premises to Azure and that used Azure Migrate. And it was really made super duper easy. You mostly just click on, clicked on things and it would complete the migration in a really neat and tidy way. So especially now with the uh, discovery and the assessment for the web apps, this might be something that I feel a lot of companies can really use. But obviously that depends on if those web apps also require some external resources that then might be left behind and need access from the cloud and whatnot. Interesting still, and I think there's a demand for all sorts of more complex migration scenarios, even, even today. Uh, last one from me, uh, updates to Azure cost management and billing. And I, I frequently use cost management in, in my own tenants and with customers, and there's numerous little updates now. And, and one of those is that if you enable the Azure cost management labs, 
So when you go to Azure Cost Management, you can you can go to the lab side to get a sort of sneak preview on on what's coming uh, for for all tenants in the future. So now you can view cost for your resources, and you can also change the scope from the menu instead of going back to cost management and changing that. And it's more streamlined. I'd, I'd like to say it's it's cleaned up. So the old Cloudin, as an example, that's removed now because you cannot provision new accounts to Cloudin anymore. That was the uh, the third party service that Microsoft acquired, and it was sort of bolted on top of Azure at some point. But now I think they retire Cl Cloudin at some point in the future. And then for enterprise accounts, the billing accounts can have um, new policies that you can enable now for cost management reservations and the marketplace. Who gets to do what and, and what actions are allowed and which actions are disallowed. So small updates here and there. And I feel every time I open Azure Cost Management, there's always a couple of new buttons you can click to see if, if it gives you more wisdom and visibility into, into your uh, cost and usage in Azure. Oh, cool, makes sense. Yep, I think they, they were all of the ones we had for today. And the last thing, probably not the most important one, but but the most unexpected one, the unexpected question. And Toby, I think it's your turn to ask me. Okay, so let me think. I, I think I have a good question here. <laughs> So you can only speak a single word today. One word, you can say it how many times you want, but you can only say one word. What would you say? Oh, this is a good one. I think it would have to be a word that would sort of be universally understood. I'm leaning on, this is, this is one word. Uh, in Finnish, but I think you have the the same in in Swedish as well, and I'd I'd say yaso. And and the the Finnish version of that would also be yahas, which is a bit the same as oh let's see, but then you can also change the uh, intonation on that and say yahas, meaning I have no idea what's happening here. Let's see. Or you could say, yahas, meaning that I'm on it, but this will take a while. Because I think that would work with the kids when they're asking something. It would work when you're fixing dinner and somebody's yelling at you why the dinner is not ready yet. Also, it would work on those numerous Teams and Zoom calls we all do nowadays. When a customer or a colleague is asking you something, you could just go, yahas, mm -hmm. yahas. Okay, that's a really good word. Very uh, multifunctional type of word. Probably pick DNS. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is similar. How are you doing today? DNS. And then <laughs> and people know. Goes, oh, yeah, <laughs> okay, <DNS."> gotcha. <laughs> yahas, yahas. <laughs> All righty, this was episode 95, and we are nearing episode 100. I think we need to come up with something fun for that episode. Thank you for joining and we hope you join next week as well. See you then. Thank you.
you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.